0: Number 674, the number has been announced. We're certainly happy to mark that, and we'll use that later in, of course, our service time today. As always, I know each of us feel a deep sense of appreciation to the opportunity that's ours to be a Christian. I think it would do us well to remember that for now, approximately 2,000 years every single Sunday... There have been people meeting to worship the God of heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we are following the host of those who for centuries have done this. They've sung songs of praise. They've prayed. They've opened the Word of God and studied it. They've surrounded the Lord's table and they've given them their means. We do exactly today what they've done then. And we shall do this, of course, until time shall be no more because it's our conviction that this is what the Lord wants us to do and He's happy when we do this in the way we should. We're certainly honored that each of us have been able to come together today. I'd like to share a lesson with you. I hope each of us may on occasion find helpful a lesson dealing with quarreling, fussing. I'm sure that each of us as human beings realize these kinds of things come our way. We find ourselves in situations and circumstances in which the reality is we argue with somebody. We perhaps have a difference of viewpoint on some subject, and as a result of that, a quarrel, a fuss develops. Well, as you can see on this slide, let's first of all notice, of course, we're made in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.26. All of us are. He made human beings that way. No wonder the fact then is this. We're different. Individuals are just different. We have different backgrounds. We have different perspectives. We have different viewpoints on subjects. And sometimes, being rather passionate about a particular viewpoint we have, we'll have a different perspective than someone with whom we're discussing. It may be a fellow church member. It may be someone at the workplace. It may be a family member. But those differences may well elevate to the point that a disagreement, a verbal disagreement, a quarrel takes place. No wonder on that slide, those kinds of disagreements, when they happen, can truly be important and significant. The question might then be this, are there any rules in the Word of God, any words of wisdom that might help us in those situations to have a quarrel in a godly way? How do I fuss, if you please, if I may call it that with someone else, and yet never allow that to come to sin? That, of course, is important. The first part of this slide is going to basically invite us to note this. Some of the pieces and some of the parts of this lesson, Denise and I noticed a lesson we heard several weeks ago now by a gentleman named Jerry Barber, and as he at least brought some of these items to bear, I've developed some of them a little differently than him, and in fact utilized some of the things in a slightly different vantage point. But at least some of those original ideas were were certainly from him. In Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to be turning there with me. We'll be devoting much of our attention to some of the features found near the close of that chapter. Ephesians 4, verses 22 and following. And while you're turning to that location, let me invite you to at least make these observations. It might be that on occasion we are under the impression as Christians that I should never fuss with anybody for any reason. That I'll never to be in quarrels, and I'll never to find myself in a circumstance wherein these kinds of things would be needful. Well, I'd like to help us see that that isn't necessarily so. Godly people, of course, as we've already learned, were made in the image of God. And as that slide rather quickly points out to us, Recall this with me. We all agree that Jesus Christ was the perfect individual in every way. He prayed all night long before He selected the apostles. And therefore, He selected exactly the right ones, no doubt that would be in accordance with the Father's will. He selected twelve. Luke 6 verse 12 reminds us that as He prayed all night prior to that selection, now let's ask this, in the times following that selection, did those apostles ever quarrel? Did they ever have disagreements or fusses between themselves? We know they did. For example, in Matthew 20, verse 24, it says, "...they had indignation among themselves." The fact is, of course, that the mother of James and John had come before Jesus and said, "...I have a question. I want my two boys to be on your right hand and left in the kingdom." When the ten heard it, they had indignation." They were extremely upset with James and John and the nature of what this was that it was being asked on their behalf. In Mark 9, verses 34 and following, one more time, the Lord, in fact, came to a place in which He privately, as He and those apostles were gathered, He said, what were you talking about in the way? And The text points out they had been discussing who'd be the greatest in the kingdom, but they were ashamed to tell Jesus that. But He knew what they'd been talking about. You see, they were fussing among themselves. Which of our numbers is going to be the greatest ones in the kingdom? Suffice it to say, the apostles then were those that at least had disagreements. They were those that had fusses or quarrels. Not only that, look at some of the next ones I would ask you to appreciate. One of the first problems that the early church faced there were some Grecian widows who were being neglected in the daily ministration. Acts 6, verses 1 and 2. And you and I remember the Hebrews, of course, brought to the attention the features of what, of what was in fact taking place. But one more time, a disagreement arose. Go a few chapters further. In Acts 15, 2, the language is very clear here. The church, again, had already begun... And a discussion, a question about circumcision arose, and the text says there was no small dissension. Now that means there was a large amount of discussion about this. And it was something that was really going to cause a great deal of trouble too, unless it was dealt with. Maybe the one you've already given thought to is later in that same chapter, Acts 15, 36. On the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had worked side by side, carrying the gospel to these various places, including that island. But suffice it to say, when the time came to give thought to the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul didn't want to take him. And the text says the contention between those two was so sharp that they parted asunder. Barnabas went his way, Paul went his way, May I say, godly people may well have disagreements. Those that serve the God of heaven, we may well have times and situations in which something arises before us that will lead to such a strong contention or disagreement. We might well call it a quarrel. But may I say, it's not a sin then to have such a circumstance, but we need to be careful how we deal with it. I don't want the existence of this to bring me to act or behave in such a way that I then develop or at least proceed into sin, and none of us would wish this. For that reason, as we close that slide, may we all appreciate that whether it be in the church, whether it be at the workplace, whether it be in our families, we may well have occasions where fusses or quarrels develop, disagreements if you please, What are some principles based on this chapter that might help us to face those matters and to deal with them in a godly way? As I list them one by one, we will, of course, invest a little bit of attention in discussing each one, but let's begin in verse 22 of Ephesians 4 to highlight the first principle that will be useful for our observation. "...that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man." which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The first principle that could be helpful, in fact it's a very vital matter, is what I would encourage us to appreciate here. As Christians, our viewpoint is not the same as the world. And by that I mean this, we serve a different king. They serve the devil. We serve King Jesus. That means our viewpoint is different. The ultimate basis of what's most important is different. We aren't in the business of elevating our name. We're in the business of always glorifying Him. In that context, Paul wrote by telling those Ephesian people, and if you'd like to go ahead and note it, notice in chapter 1, Who is the book of Ephesians written to? Verse number 1 of chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. This was written to the church. And yet sometimes we as the church need to be reminded, I'm not like the world. My viewpoint is different. What's most important to me is different. Now, quite often the world follows this thing, well, I'm number one, I'm most important, and really what you want is less important than mine. But in Christ Jesus, that's all turned around. I'm supposed to value your opinion, the things that's most needful for you, higher than what it is for me. Esteem others better than yourselves, Philippians 2, verses 3 3 and 4. And therefore, this new man idea is going to be valuable as you look at the particular way Paul develops it. It says in verse number 22, this old man that we're supposed to put off, it says it's corrupt. It follows what's deceitful. You know, the devil has done a masterful job at deceiving the minds of so very many, thinking that the matters of this world are truly what's most important. But verse 23 says, be renewed in your spirit. You and I as Christians realize in many cases what this fuss is all about is not ultimately that important. Now, it might be, admittedly, but sometimes, isn't it amazing how we can fuss about the most ridiculous and unimportant and insignificant things? Maybe it is in that connection that we can be be reminded that we're renewed in our spirit, and verse 24 says, put on the new man. Put on the new man. you notice on that slide, in that particular idea, When you and I contemplate putting on the new man, remember this describes the nature of life. It describes the nature of when I'm quarreling and when I'm not. That means there are principles here that will be appropriate even in those situations in which I'm in disagreement with somebody. That new man then leads me to point number two. You can see it on the slide and it's time to cast a spotlight upon it. It's the next verse. Verse number 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now one of the things that just leaps off the page in many ways here is, as we learned a moment ago, these words were written to the church at Ephesus. It wasn't written to the world, and yet he said, put away lying. It would appear that people in the church at Ephesus were in the habit of lying to each other. They were in a habit of not telling the truth to each other. Paul says, you've got to stop that. Because verse number 25 says, Speak every man truth with his neighbor. We're members one of another. May I offer the thought then that there's a principle in that that will help us even in disagreements with people that are not Christians. May we always speak the truth. May we always, always, always speak that which is true. It will be to no advantage to speak what is deceptive, to speak what is a blatant lie. To build that idea, you'll notice what's on this slide. May we appreciate this was critical for the church and therefore it's still needful for you and for me as well. Look at a few examples. Those of us who are parents, it's important to always tell the truth. Our children will learn very, very quickly when we do not mean what we say. You threaten that little boy or girl, if you do that again, I'm going to take your cell phone away from you. Well, they do it again and the cell phone's not taken. You do that again and I'm going to spank you. They do it again, and no spanking is forthcoming. They learn quickly whether or not we mean what we say. And it'll not take them long to appreciate, Dad, Mom's not telling the truth. Oh, they threaten, but they don't mean it. And it won't take that youngster very long before, again, they're living basically almost as they want, knowing that Dad and Mom won't do anything. But you know it isn't just with parents and children. Sometimes we as adults don't tell the truth either. We can be so very tempted in a situation, it's going to be painful if I tell the truth because they're not going to like what I say. And so I'll just sugarcoat it. I'll just beat around the bush. I just won't tell the truth. Well, we are doing them no favor when we do this. And quite frankly, that may well be a part of what produces a later argument because at some later point the person says, you never told me that. Here's an example. Maybe there's two individuals having, again, something between them, and one of them says, I just get the sense that things aren't well. What's bothering you? The person says nothing, when there is something bothering them. And it's something the other person is doing, and yet they say nothing. If we do that, we just lied. We just blatantly did not tell the truth. Something was bothering me. The person plainly asked me what it was, and I didn't say anything. In fact, I said nothing. You see, the idea, Paul says, we just shouldn't be doing this. As we will develop in the next verse, those issues, such as anger in that way, they need to be dealt with. They'll just fester if we don't deal with them. They just lie beneath the surface waiting for a time to burst forth and bring about more havoc and damage. Notice the next thought. The Bible's teaching in this regard is very intriguing. In Proverbs 27, verse number 5, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Now, frankly, that takes a great deal of appreciation on your part in mind. For someone to come to me and look directly at me and say, could I share something with you? What you said or what you did, that really is not the thing that's best. And let me tell you why. It hurt me or it hurt someone else that you ought to love. It's so easy for you and I to be defensive, to try to justify, well, I said it for this reason, When all the while, you'll notice that there's something better than secret love. By that, that means trying to love someone and don't hurt them in any way. And it says open rebuke is better. Tell them what it is that's the problem and deal with it. And once that's put behind you, it's far better than just letting it lie beneath the surface and fester in mind and lead to grudges and maybe other things. One more thing you'll notice on that slide. There's a principle, it seems, that Jesus, in fact, stated that touched this directly in Matthew 5, 37. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Himself said, Let your communication be like this. Let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay. Now, does it sound like what you and I sometimes are tempted to do? Nothing's bothering me? Is that what Jesus said? If something's bothering you, then express it. Now do it tactfully and do it in love, but let the person understand and know what the source of the problem is. Those words by Jesus close that slide for us with the following statement. When two people, of course, appreciate and respect one another, then there's a trust and openness. There is a stronger bond of relationship than there was before. And that's all because one has learned to trust and to regard highly the expressions that the other one has shared. So when you and I are quarreling, I know that in the moment of high emotion, may we remember, let's speak the truth. And if we're not in position to do that, we'd be better off to again close our mouth for a moment and cool off. And then maybe we can approach that resolution more easily the next verse will bring us another word of wisdom. We just noticed verse 25. Verse 26, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. I hope that all of us are impressed by the present tense thrust of that presentation. Now we learned earlier that maybe you and I are tempted to think a Christian just ought never be angry. And no matter what happens and no matter how it happens, I just have to bite my tongue and never ever express anything that's strong or passionate. That's not what this verse says. He says, be ye angry. When there are things that happen in your life and mine, it's not at all wrong to be appropriately angry. In fact, I would offer that there are things about which you and I are passionate that we're almost guaranteed that we need to get angry. Look at some of these examples on that slide. Our master became angry. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. Now this was early on in his public ministry. He hadn't been preaching all that long. And you may remember he came into the temple in Jerusalem and was exceedingly angry about what he witnessed. There were, of course, those that had turned the temple basically into a marketplace. (laughs) They were selling doves, and they were exchanging money, and that's not what the Lord said the temple was about. You've turned it into a den of thieves, and He turned over the money changers' tables, and He made a cord and drove off the animals. There's no doubt Jesus was angry. And He was angry because the worship of the Lord had been corrupted. They were perverting the very thing the temple was supposed to be about. That isn't the only time in His public ministry that happened. Later on, in Matthew 21, it happened again. Now, those people had started doing exactly the same thing later that they had done earlier, and He did the same thing again. He drove out the animals, and in anger, He tried to teach them that worship was about something besides this. Maybe in that light, we can now say this, that next point. The present tense verb, be angry and sin not. When you and I find ourselves in a quarrel, in a fuss, a moment in which this disagreement has arisen to that point, may I say that seemingly points to us to this word of wisdom. Deal with that subject at that time. I entitled it, Do Not Err by References to Time. This isn't the time to bring up what happened a year ago. It isn't the time to bring up what happened five years ago. This is the subject at this moment. Be angry. He didn't use a past tense verb. The particular matter now is something on which we can focus our attention and discuss profitably, not tangential matters that are not directly this one that may have occurred far in the past. Because as long as we've learned what we're about to learn, those should have been dealt with then. They shouldn't have been allowed to fester, shouldn't have been allowed to continue. And it's no more needful to bring them up once they're dealt with. It's somewhat like the way our God deals with things. Aren't you and I thankful that when He forgives me of something, I don't have to keep praying for forgiveness for it five years into the future? Our God has forgiven it, and it no longer is held against me. I know our memories aren't perfect the way His is. But that's the beauty of dealing with an issue then, so that we no longer have to bring it up continually. One last thing about that point number three. The wording of verse 26, be angry. We've highlighted the first three words, but of course it quickly says, and sin not. It's perfectly capable then to be angry but never sin. Where you and I get into trouble is when we allow that anger to turn into sin. We allow it to bring us to say things we ought not say, to do things we should not do, to react maybe in hatred towards somebody, and the Lord commands that we ought to love everybody. Therein lies the danger. So first of all, we've learned we're new people. Secondly, always speak the truth. And now thirdly, be careful with regard to time references when we become angry. That isn't the time to bring up, well, you've always done this ever since I've known you. That's just the way you are. Well, that's not a profitable description. The moment at hand, the issue at hand, is whatever the circumstance is, Now's the time to discuss that, not everything about that person's history. Point number four the bottom of that slide. It's the latter part of verse 26. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Sometimes we err in that regard, don't we? We have a disagreement with somebody, someone with whom, again, we have a fuss or a quarrel, and we hold on to that for days. And yet, Paul, by inspiration, reminded us, and may I encourage all of us to note the strength of this. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Settle this anger matter. Whatever it is that's prompting this, discuss it and take care of it in a timely way. Don't allow it to linger. Don't allow it to fester into grudges. Don't allow it to persist on and on for days and weeks and even longer. I know you and I have known people like this individuals for whom something has happened, perhaps in a family, perhaps in some other arrangement. And out of that has come two people who won't talk to one another, and maybe years pass. They have no dealings whatsoever. May I say that is a blatant appreciation that's condemned by what this verse teaches us. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, I developed it like this. When Paul made that statement to us, it is a matter that's very strong and straightforward. And it's too the case that sometimes in matters of great emotion, it might be challenging to not let the sun go down upon my wrath. It would be fair to say, as that slide closes, Jesus had something to say about this again in that Sermon on the Mount. Would you turn back with me to Matthew 5 and let's at least read a couple of the verses there and then put the two together and draw some final observations. Matthew chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse number 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar... And go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. The first two parts of that description. Jesus said, If you come to the altar, so here's a discussion of worship. If you and I arrive at the the church building on Sunday morning and we are making preparation for worship, and then we remember that there is a brother who has awed against me. By commandment, the Lord said, leave that church building and you go make things right with your brother. Then you come and worship doesn't that highlight how incredibly important it is about the nature of our dealings with each other and the character of how significant that is in light of acceptable worship? Now, it may well be at this point we could say, some people do not want peace. In other words, it might be that you and I wish to be at peace with someone else, but they may not want it. The Bible doesn't foresay that we can force our desire of peace upon them they may wish to continue to live with hatred toward us. We can't change that part. But didn't Paul say in Romans 12, 18, As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, to the extent that we can, it will be our desire such that we'd be at peace with others and we'll be able to worship in the way God wants us to. Did you notice what he next said in that same passage? Again, the next verse. Verse number 25, agree with thine adversary quickly. That sounds a lot like what Paul wrote. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It should be our desire, you see, as much as in us to agree with that adversary, to do what we can to ensure in a timely and quick way that this thing is resolved. As you and I close that slide, looking at this fourth point, so far we have learned a great deal about these tips that can help us. Let's look at another one. We'll review them all shortly, but let's come also in Ephesians 4 to verse number 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers." Now, when the time comes, of course, that we're involved in a dispute or in a contention, a quarrel, without doubt, the thing upon which we typically rely is our voice. We speak things. That's the way we react. What about the words that we choose to use? The Ephesians were told, don't let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now, we as Christians, we would never want corrupt communication to proceed from us. But did you notice what it includes? But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. When you and I are having a contention, when we're having this quarrel or fuss, recognize this other person with whom we're discussing, perhaps in a heated way. That would be included. Is what we say edifying to them meaning that what we're saying is truthful and what we're saying is directed toward the resolution of this situation. Some of the points on that slide then lead us to remember some things that happened in the Bible. You recall in Numbers chapter 20 when Moses, of course, was such that it was time to bring water out of this rock to provide the necessary water for the children of Israel And God had given Moses the instructions as to what to do. It involved, of course, a rather powerful and beautiful thing. And yet, as Moses not only spoke to the rock, he struck it twice. And God brought forth water out of the rock. But what happened? Later, when the psalmist described that event, he said, Moses spoke unadvisedly because of the impression of the children of Israel. He became so emotionally angry at what they were doing and their disbelief that he acted in this way that was sinful toward God. Sometimes we can do that. We speak inadvisedly. Our temper has become so hot that we speak very inappropriately. Corrupt communication proceeds from us, and that isn't good. That won't help resolve the situation, and likely, it'll all, all it'll lose is inflame it. It'll just make it worse. Some particular examples, there's a certain thing that, have, that has arisen to cause this distinction, this disagreement. And quite often, rather than discussing the issue, we berate the person we're talking to. Well, you're, you're just a sorry person. You've never been any good for anything. I guess I'm not surprised you act this way may I ask, that is not going to resolve this issue. The issue is not the person. The issue is the, idea, it's the element, whatever the matter is. When we have these discussions, these contentions, may we discuss the issue, not the person. The issue that is involved in this particular matter of passionate disagreement. One more verse that touches that, of course, takes us back to Jesus. It's the ones just prior to the ones I read. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. This passage is rather familiar to us, at least in one regard, but there's another sense in which it isn't. Let me start reading in verse 21. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, but whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Questions. Have you heard sermons or Bible studies that encourage us, don't ever call somebody a fool? And we use that verse reminding us to always value the nature of how God has created people and just don't blatantly... Turn to someone and refer to them in this foolish way. Well, probably we have, but did you notice what came before it? What about the word "reka"? Have you ever called a person that? Have I? Now, that word "reka" is from another language, and so I suspect that none of us have ever openly used that phrase, but I wonder what the word means. It means, you stupid blockhead. You dumbbo. Have you ever called somebody that? In anger? Referring to somebody by besmirching them with word like stupid? That's what the word "reka" means. And we're just as guilty if we do that as if we've called them a fool. When we argue with somebody, when we thus find ourselves in this situation, may we guard our language and don't, Insult them that way. Again, the issue is something, not them. And thus, when you refer to someone in that fashion, we, you see, are really not helping to resolve it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. The sixth and final one. What else might we use to help us to argue in a better way? It's the last verse of chapter 4. Now, I might point out that verses 31 and 32, as we read all of these, it says, "...let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice." Now, if we pause just a moment, consider the breadth of items that have been included in that list. One by one, bitterness. We shouldn't be holding grudges. You shouldn't be bitter to people. Secondly, wrath. These statements, these outbursts of anger. The word clamor. Now that word means to raise the voice, to shout at somebody. Paul says you just need to put that away from you. There should be no cause for a Christian to start yelling in ways like that in anger. Then he says evil speaking. That's again blasphemy in light of the character of the other person. And he says, Let all of that be put away from you. And as opposed to it, look at verse 32. If that's what we can't do, here's what we should do. And be ye kind one to another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. To practice kindness. To realize there is an issue that has caused this, this discussion, but yet to develop it in a way that's kind, remembering that we were the enemies of God and yet He forgave us. You and I should be humble enough. If we find ourselves in the wrong to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, would you forgive me? Sometimes that's hard to do, I know. We want to preserve ourselves and preserve what my point of view is, but if I'm wrong, I need to be willing to say it and to ask for forgiveness and put the issue behind me. There is no saving face in an argument, really. Perhaps it's fair to say, this kindness, didn't Jesus exhibit it? On that slide, how often did the Master teach things like this? Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them. For this is the Law and the Prophets, Matthew seven twelve. No wonder in that light. I hope that we've been reminded of some things we can do to help us when we argue, to help us when we find ourselves in quarrels. They'll make us stronger Christians. They'll make us better influencers of those things that are right. To quickly revisit them, we said, let us never forget we're new creatures in Christ. We put off the old man. We put on the new one. And we are committed to speaking the truth always even in situations of quarrel. Beyond that, we agree that we try to keep current, as verse 26 told us, not bringing up matters long distant in the past. They aren't the issue that's the source of this. And when we're angry, let's deal with it then. Don't hold on to it so that you can use it against the person later. Don't hold on to it so that, again, you can use it at the opportune time to win an argument later. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. And the last two were these. May we always be given to no corrupt communication and in every instance to exhibit kindness. I hope that these things have been helpful as we think about matters of emotion and discussions and even quarrels we might enter into. The Word of God in every case has the right disposition to have. And as we mature in Christ, it's our hope we can develop to be more like the Master And when we are angry, to never let it become sin. Today, if anyone would wish to respond in a public way to the gospel's invitation, we want you to know that as a person who's never become a Christian, don't you want the Master walking with you every day, helping you with strength and encouragement? To become a Christian, you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Once you have put on the Lord in baptism, and you walk with Him, it's not to say you're not going to make mistakes. We all do. But if you have been involved in things known publicly that have besmirched the character of Jesus and His church, Jesus wants you back. He still loves you, and we do too. And He wants to forgive you, but that's your decision. You've got to come back to Him by repenting of those sins, confessing them, and He's promised that He'll forgive them. If today we could be of assistance in that way or others, we would love to do that while together we stand and while we sing.